0: Good morning, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> this morning we will close out Jesus' trial, and starting next week, Jesus will be headed to Golgotha in the crucifixion. Um, we have seen Jesus' trial before the Jews, we've seen Jesus' trial before Pilate and Herod. And this morning, Jesus does not so much act in our text as he has acted upon. He does not speak. I do not believe he is even named. And what Luke has us look at this morning, what we will see, is the sealing of his fate. Luke draws attention to the complicity, the central role of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, in condemning the Son of Man, To death. Let's read starting in verse 13 of chapter 23 through verse 25. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Well, Lord God, as we study this passage, guard us from arrogance. Guard us from thinking that apart from your grace, we would have done anything different And what the Jewish people did here. It is terrible. It is tragic. Um, As we see this perversion of justice. And yet, knowing that it was your good pleasure, it was your plan of redemption and salvation being accomplished. So even as we cringe in horror, we rejoice with great joy at the wisdom of our God who uses such things for his good purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Son of Man is sentenced to death. Now, Luke is emphatic on this point. There's repetition in this passage in a number of places. As I said, Jesus doesn't speak. He doesn't act in our text. He's acted upon. And so Luke's purpose for Theophilus, Luke's purpose for us, is to give absolute certainty why it was Jesus was condemned. The report going out through the Roman Empire in Theophilus' time is Jesus was a criminal. Rightly condemned, and there's this weird cult, this weird faction, you know, carrying a torch for him. And Luke wants to make it clear, no, he was innocent. No, he was righteous. And no, this wasn't led by some corruption in the Roman government. Make no mistake, there's corruption in the Roman government. We see it here. But it is driven and spearheaded by Israel. And as we see today, by the people. Israel rejected their Messiah. Israel insisted upon his death. God's chosen people, ones with the most spiritual insight, who'd received the scriptures, who'd received the prophets, whom God had spoken to, whom God had redeemed from Egypt, whom God had delivered to a land, those privileged people emphatically, consistently, urgently, demanded the death of their Messiah and their God. That's that's the point. We're going to look at it in three points through the text. First, Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent, verses 13 to 16. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man, guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And here we get the clear statement repeated again. Remember, Pilate has already tried Jesus and declared him innocent. And here is a verdict. Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent. It begins with Pilate's summons. Pilate's summons. Then call, the Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at the chief priests and the scribes. They're the ones who out Luke's gospel, Jesus has said, will be his enemies. He'll be handed over to them. They are the ones who've been plotting to arrest Jesus in the temple, sending in spies. But the inclusion of that last blank, the people, is somewhat dismaying and shocking. Remember, Towards the end of Luke's gospel, there's been a tension between, on the one hand, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the chief priests who determined to put Jesus to death, and the people who were hanging on his every word. The people who were so enthralled by Jesus and his teaching, they, they they provided a form of protection to him. We're told twice that the scribes were afraid of the people. They didn't dare do anything against Jesus because of the people. They hired Judas to deliver them over to him sometime when the people weren't around. So on the one hand, you've got the leaders, the religious leaders, the political leaders of Israel, but the people are hanging on his every word. They're showing up at the temple at dawn, staying till dusk. And up until this point, you might be able to argue, it's Israel's leadership that's corrupt, but the people are okay. And there was a remnant of, who believed But now, added into the Jewish leadership's um, judgment, the people there was a crowd earlier, but now Pilate summons the chief priests, the scribes, and the people. now Israel 's leadership and israel 's people by and large are in lockstep. They are univocal in their pronouncement. The people are following their leaders, they move and act as one. This is the basis of the preaching in the book of Acts that can indiscriminately declare to the Jews, assembled at Pentecost and other places, you put to death the Holy One of God. The people have now resolved this tension and they are in united with their leaders. And what we're about to see is the action of corporate Israel. Again, there are exceptions. There is a remnant But Israel, the nation, nationally rejects Jesus as part of the emphasis here. So Pilate summons the priests, scribes, and the people. And then Pilate gives his verdict. We have Pilate's verdict. And it's not just a verdict, but it's really a reiteration of the entire trial sequence. First, he mentions the arrest. You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. He recounts the charges. In other words, part of what Pilate's doing is showing this has been properly done. Jesus was arrested, brought to him. The charges were given. He was misleading the people. There was an examination. And then there's a verdict. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Then we get a corroborating verdict. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing... Deserving death has been done by him. So in Pilate's recounting of this, he's making the point, we've we've done an investigation. We heard your charges. We did, we investigated. We sent him to another judge, another king, another ruler, Herod. We have a confirming judgment. Here is our verdict. He's innocent. He is innocent. And remember, we saw last week, Pilate is a corrupt, cruel, wicked, godless man. He doesn't hesitate to kill Jewish people and mix their blood with the sacrifices in the temple. These are not good guys. But even they testify to the innocence of Jesus. And then point C, Pilate gives his intent. Okay, so now what? I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's intent to chastise and release Jesus. And here we see part of his corruption. Yes, he's innocent, but that won't stop us from punishing him to some degree. I mean, Pilate, to some degree, will see, is political. He, he, he wants to give the people a bone, so to speak. They clearly are upset at him. He probably did something. So even though we couldn't find anything that he did, so sure, we'll, we'll, we'll whip him, we'll thrash him, then we'll release him, and everyone's happy. That's Pilate's intent. And Pilate is set to release him. I'll get that. This is emphatic in this text. Pilate's desire to release Jesus. Again, in verse 20, Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus. But ultimately, verse 25, he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. So Pilate summons them. He got, He's the the Roman leader over Judea and Jerusalem. He summons. He's, he's given his trial. He's Consulted, he's investigated, here's my verdict. And he recounts how a, a proper court procedure took place. His judgment is not rash. He heard their charges, he investigated, he sent over to a, another ruler, and their decision is unanimous. He's innocent, therefore we'll chastise and release him. The crowd doesn't like that. The crowd does not like that at all. And notice now in verse 18, But they. Luke has lumped the chief priests, the rulers, and the people together with one pronoun. That's what I mean when I say they're acting as one. Luke can simply say they. Which they? The scribes? Yes. Which they? The rulers? Yes. Which they? The people? Uh Uh-huh. They. And they're speaking with one voice. Not likely that every single one of them is at the same time saying the same thing. The point of this is to show with one voice, with one word, with one desire, they are united. They all cried out, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. By the way, if you have the ESV, you'll note that there is no verse 17 there. Um, We can talk about that briefly in the ABF, but in short, the older manuscripts don't have that. The New King James NAS has it in brackets. It's a reference to the custom of releasing a prisoner at this time of the year, most likely not original to Luke's gospel. We can talk more about that in the Sunday school. But the crowd demands Jesus' crucifixion. The crowd demands Jesus' crucifixion. They all cried out together, Away with this man, released to us Barabbas, "'a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, "'started in the city and for murder. "'Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, "'but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. "'A third time he said to them, why? "'What evil has he done? "'I have found in him no guilt deserving death. "'I will therefore punish and release him.' "'But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries "'that he should be crucified.' And their voices prevailed. The crowd demands Jesus' crucifixion. So first point, the crowd demands the release of Barabbas. The crowd demands the release of Barabbas. There's some significance and some irony here. Barabbas, his name literally means son of the father. Bar, son, Abba, father. Barabbas, son of the father. The real son of the father is standing in front of them. This son of the father they're going to release. Luke emphasizes his guilt not once, but twice. Twice we're told Barabbas is guilty of these crimes. Again, notice the emphasis, the repetition. A man, verse 19, who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So you're blank here. He is truly guilty. of insurrection and murder. And in case you missed that, in verse 25, again, Luke wants to highlight the sad irony. He released the man, verse 25, who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The author repeats himself, there's emphasis. Luke wants us to get. They released the guilty man. They condemned the innocent man. So Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He is trying to start a revolt. He's killed people trying to do this. His name means son of father or son of the father. And in showing the ultimate corruption and wickedness, and being handed over to darkness. Remember, Jesus said, now is the power of darkness. We, We see it at work here. These people, with God's word, God's prophet, in the land God had given them, not only condemned the righteous but cry out for the release of the guilty. Not a repentant, contrite, guilty man. No mention of that. This isn't an act of mercy. We're seeing their absolute corruption. Jesus' crucifixion isn't about any sort of honest mistake, any sort of confusion. These people are completely given over to their desires. Jesus and his identity as God's son, as their king, His exposing of their sin cannot be tolerated and anything else will be accepted in its place. Kill him, whatever the cost. Let the guilty man go. Sure, whatever, whatever has to be done simply to kill and silence him. So they demand the release of Barabbas who is a truly guilty of insurrection. And again, this is no small point. The fact that not only do they condemn the righteous but they release the guilty... In Acts 3, Peter picks this up in his preaching. You denied, this is what Peter says to all of Israel assembled, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. It's not just that you condemn the righteous, but the, 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 the cherry on top of this travesty Is You asked for a wicked man to be released. You could have released someone. And you released the insurrectioning murderer. You condemned the Holy One of God. So, Pilate now, again, attempts to release Jesus. And that's another part of the repetition in this text. Pilate, not once, but multiple times, tries to release Jesus. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Now, notice Pilate has already, back in verse 4, pronounced Jesus innocent and was ready to let him go. That's the first time Pilate tried to release Jesus. Verse 4 said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent and the people pushed back. So, in the first instance, Pilate Pronounces him innocent, the people push back. So then Pilate makes a second attempt. He's partly kicking the can down the road. He sends him over to Herod. And Herod sends him back. He's innocent. It didn't stop us from mocking him, dressing him up in fine robes and spitting on him and and blaspheming him. But yeah, if you want to know, he's innocent. And now, a third time here, Herod, I mean, Pilate is attempting to release Jesus. And again, Luke is emphasizing this. Pilate addressed them once more. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And notice in verse 23, again, Luke is highlighting this. A third time, he said to them. You get this? The multiple attempts. It wasn't just once, wasn't just twice, three times in our text, plus his pronouncement in verse 4, and him sending him to Herod, Pilate wants to release Jesus. He tries to release Jesus. He argues. There's an advocate for Jesus. This wicked man is advocating, repeatedly attempting to set Jesus free. What's the conclusion? Jesus ultimately, from a human perspective, goes to the cross. Yes, Rome is complicit, but unwillingly. Jesus goes to the cross, in our text, from a human perspective, because of the insistent urgent, resolute, determined position of Israel. Israel, the people, and their leaders ultimately are what drive Jesus to the cross. And it pleased God in this context to have wicked Roman officials defending Jesus, trying to let him go. So as we read this, we understand ultimately this is about Israel's rejection of their Messiah. It is that resolute. It is that urgent. It is that insistent. But the crowd keeps shouting. They kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. Now, this is one of the parts of this text that was striking to me. I'd never noticed this before, but notice in this text on whose lips does this word crucifixion or crucify occur first the Romans or the Jews? Jews. Rome had a number of ways, from what we can tell, of putting people to death, killing them. Paul references people who've put their neck at risk, referencing possibly beheading in Romans 16. It wasn't Rome, but the Jewish people. It was the crowd that chose crucifixion. Blank. The crowd has fixed on crucifixion. In other words, not only has Israel determined that Jesus must die. But they have settled on, fixed on, this horrific means of death. And in about two weeks, we're going to pause and look back a little further, but just keep your thumb here. Go to Deuteronomy 21-23. These leaders of Israel, these scribes, knew what was written in Deuteronomy 21-23. They settled on. They chose crucifixion. It was their selection And they would have known what is written in Deuteronomy 21, 22-24. If a man has committed the crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So understand, these people who knew the law have chosen a death which is the most shameful and ignominious, not simply from a Roman standpoint in pain, but in the Jewish mind, they knew, they understood that there were extreme cases. The precedent set for this is in numbers, where Phineas impales the couple in the tent who were fornicating and there are some times, the Lord's saying, when, when a crime will demand. Notice Deuteronomy doesn't tell you when. Here are the times that you hang people on a tree in the sun. But when you do, when those times arise, that act so indicates their cursed relationship to God, They're cursed of God, defiled, that you take them down before nightfall, lest that curse spreads the land and you defile the land. So in selecting crucifixion, understand what Israel truly thinks of Jesus. This man not only deserves to die, this man deserves that death. This man deserves and is cursed of God. That's what they're saying. The rejection is absolute and total. Of course, the Apostle Paul picks this up in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That was not Israel's intent in choosing crucifixion. But it's one final insight into what they thought of their estimation of Jesus. He deserves that death. But we also know, don't we, that this this choice, this selection by Israel... As wicked as it is, as corrupted as it is, as much as it reveals their bankrupt morals, is done in fulfillment of Scripture. What evil men do in their very attempts to raise their fists and rail against God ultimately can and will fulfill his purposes. Psalm twenty two, sixteen predicts There it is. They have pierced my hands and feet. We read in Zechariah, back when we studied through Zechariah, they'll look on me upon him whom they have pierced. And ironically, it's Israel who selects this death. It is Israel who chooses this. Now go to Acts 4. We've seen this before, but we'll look at it today and we'll probably look at it again. The early church saw... In the death of Jesus, two things. Remember when we did our series on election and predestination we emphasized God's absolute sovereignty but man's real responsibility? This is one of those passages that weds those two themes together. On the one hand, the early church saw in the death of Jesus the horrific injustice, the, the terrible guilt of a nation rejecting this righteous, spotless Lamb of God. Repent. It was the call to Israel. They lay the charge at their feet, and yet they understood this was the plan of God. And this is one of those passages. Peter and John get released. Verse twenty-three, Acts four twenty-three. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, so the whole church has heard the beating and release. Church gathers, they lift their voice together to God and said, and then look at their prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to quote Psalm 2. They're going to see in both the crucifixion of Jesus and the persecution they are facing a partial fulfillment of Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers, the rulers, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, which, remember, anointed is the same as the Hebrew, mostly S, the English. The Hebrew is messiah or messiah, and the Greek is christos or Christ, against the Lord and his Christ or his messiah. Then they give the example. What is it that fulfills partly Psalm 2? For truly, in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So there's the guilt. There's the responsibility. The nations are raging. The nations are raging against God and we saw that raging take place when this conspiracy and unlikely alliance between the Jewish people and Herod and Pontius Pilate took place. Woe to them. I mean, the end of Psalm 2 calls on the nations to to kiss the sun and do homage, lest you perish in the wind. There's human responsibility. Woe to these wicked people who rage against God. And you get verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Because of course the crucifixion of Jesus was not an afterthought, wasn't a course of correction. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world As you turn back to Luke, part of what I think Luke wants us to understand is even in their rejection of Jesus, going so far as to give him the death that you only give to the cursed of God ones, they are unwittingly fulfilling scripture. They are unwittingly fulfilling God's plan. It doesn't let them off the hook, but we do see the finger of a sovereign God even through this text. The Jewish people cry, crucify, crucify. And again, Pilate tries to stop it. And again, Luke emphasizes this. 22, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Then he repeats his previous intent. Therefore, I will punish and release him. Pilate stands firm for Jesus' release. He tells them again. That Jesus is not guilty. And again, I'll reiterate to you, when an author repeats himself, he wants to make the point, if you haven't got it yet emphatically, Jesus is innocent. And the judges of Jesus know he's innocent and are arguing on his behalf. But they were urgent. Oh, point two, sorry. This is now the third attempt to release him. So in Luke's narrative... Herod wants to let him go. Pilate really wants to let him go. And again and again and again, the they, the people, the combined conglomerate group of Israel's leaders and the people will press and ultimately prevail. This is the third attempt to release him now. The third attempt. And the people have none of it. Verse 23, but they, and again, that they, chief priests, the rulers, and the people, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. This Roman leader, again, we see his corruption, his weakness, he's a coward, is bullied by this crowd. Who will not take no for an answer, this crowd who is urgently demanding and yelling and screaming and pressing, the crowd's urgent insistence prevails. Prevails. So, from Luke's account, why does Jesus ultimately get crucified? He's found innocent, after all, not once, not twice, but three times. Here's first. Interview with him, he's innocent. I mean, Pilate's first interviewed them. he's innocent. Herod, he's innocent. Pilate a second time, he's innocent. And we have to conclude when reading Luke. Even though absolutely, Herod and Pilate are complicit. I'm not trying to let them off the hook. But what Luke wants us to see is the driving force, the decisive factor, and the ultimate responsibility rests upon the people of Israel. And they prevail. And ultimately it is their will that is done. So we move to our third point. Pilate surrenders Jesus to the people's will. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Literally, point A, Pilate gives judgment according to their demands. Now, this is, again, in stark contrast to what God calls of judges. And again, Pilate's not a good guy. He's a weak, corrupt, wicked man. In Exodus 23, 2, we read, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Exodus three six: you shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. That's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, three times, he's innocent, he's innocent. Okay, you can go. The Gospel of John gives a bit more insight into their insistence. This is a weak man, and he gives judgment according to their demand. And again, we get the repetition with Barabbas and Jesus he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Somebody goes free. It's the guilty man. And somebody is condemned as the innocent man. Again, further highlighting that not only was Jesus innocent, he should have been released on those grounds. Even guilty people had some chance, opportunity for release and forgiveness, as Barabbas has shown. Jesus was not afforded that either. He releases the insurrectionist and murderer. And again, notice this final phrase here for responsibility of the crucifixion. He delivered Jesus over to their will. And who's the they? The scribes, verse 13 chief priests, the rulers, and the people. It's Israel. So what do we we learn from this? Um, Two things. Jump over to John chapter 1. I think there's a practical point for us here. And I said at the beginning that the uh, the danger is to become arrogant. Uh, Church history is, is littered with examples of the last few thousand years of Christians, or people who call themselves Christians, coming to the wrong conclusions. And instead of seeing in this text... There by the grace of God go I. I. I could do this same thing. They think, oh, those awful Jews. How could they be so dumb? And leads to anti-Semitism and persecution. You can, you can read the books. It's, it's absolutely the case. That is the wrong conclusion to come to. The point to come to is this. Our wickedness, your and my wickedness, is so great that the most privileged, the most enlightened, the most informed people, given over to their sin and the bonds of their sin... Acted so wickedly, and what hope then is there for you and for me apart from God's grace? John writes it this way in John 1. Here's a point to get from this verse 9 The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he's going to zoom in again. In general, Jesus was rejected. In specific, in verse 11, he was rejected by his own people. He came to his own, we could translate that his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's this terrible contrast. Jesus comes and the world doesn't know him. Jesus comes to, surely if anyone in the world is going to know him and receive him, it'll be his people. No, not them. And then he turns over to us, but we can receive him. So I submit to you, what does it mean that Israel didn't receive Jesus? They liked his teaching. They hung on his every word. They liked the miracles and the healings. Jesus? Well, what drove Jesus to the cross ultimately it was his claims to deity, his claims to kingship. So then, in John 1, you and I have a chance to receive Jesus. You and I have a chance to do what Israel did not. Will you receive Jesus as he's presented in Luke's gospel? Will you turn to him as your king? Will you own him as your Messiah? Will you call him your God? Luke gives us a perfect illustration of what this means. Israel didn't receive him, but to as many as did. And in Luke, what, what would a proper reception be? Ultimately, what does it come down to? His claims at authority, his claims at holiness, his claims at sovereignty. Receiving Jesus isn't as simple as receiving a package. It's receiving a king. And you and I can receive him in exactly the way that Israel didn't. One other point I want to make. Turn to Isaiah 53. I know this passage is ringing, at least through my ears, as I read Luke's account. But I want you to pick up on one detail of Isaiah 53. Naomi Olsgard sharply picked up on this a few weeks ago in ABF. My first was, this is point out to my John MacArthur, and if you're interested in this, his book, The Gospel According to God, is an exposition of Isaiah 53, as I understand it. And this passage we've read many, many times, is written, two striking features. One, it is past tense. Two, it's plural first-person pronouns. We, not I, not you, not he, We. Naomi asked, who's speaking? Who's the we? It's a great question. I believe the answer is that this text is future, repentant, believing Israel. Remember in Zechariah 12, the Lord says, I'll pour my spirit upon the house of Israel. So that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they will weep and mourn for him as for a firstborn. So God says at some point in the future, in Israel's hour of need, God will open their eyes, they will understand, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will weep and mourn and say, what have we done? And in that context, read Isaiah 53. After reading what we've just read this morning, read Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a dry root, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, we esteemed him as one worthy of hanging on a tree because he was cursed by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He said not a word to Herod. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Even Herod and Pilate agreed on that. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge So the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Israel put to death their Messiah. And in doing so, they simply did what you and I would have done apart from the grace of God. Every day of my unbelieving life, I said no to King Jesus. I said no to the sovereign God. I did as I pleased. And if I was pressed on the point, I too would cry out, crucify, crucify away with him. But I trust that we are those who by God's grace have received Jesus. We are those who have a king, who have a savior, who have a Messiah. I'm going to call the worship team up now for our closing song. And I think it's only fitting that we sing all praise to him. We see our corruption on display. And yet God is sovereign in and through it. Please stand.